Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, I want to welcome you back. Today's webinar is made possible by the generous support of our donors. For those donors joining us today, thank you. Your generosity is critical in helping us to reach tens of thousands of policymakers, community leaders, journalists, and interested ind individuals like today's audience members. If you're not yet an Israel Policy Forum donor, please join us and visit israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving to make a gift today. And thank you. Before we begin today, today's discussion, Yom HaZikaron, Israel's Memorial Day, is being observed in Israel as we speak. So I'd like us to take a moment to remember those who pay the ultimate price to keep Israel secure and preserve her future. Thank you. Now on to today's program. Last week, the Biden administration announced the resumption of $150 million in aid to the Palestinians, on top of $15 million in disaster relief funding released last week. This policy decision also arrives at an important juncture in Palestinian politics. Elections for the PA legislature, presidency, and PLO National Council are on the horizon. But whether those elections will be carried out as planned remains to be seen. To help us break down these issues, we're fortunate to be joined by a good friend of Israel Policy Forum, Neri Zilber. Neri is a journalist and an adjunct fellow at the Washington Institute. With that, Neri, thank you so much for joining us, especially on such a solemn day. My pleasure, Susie. Thank, thank you and IPF for having me back. Well, we're, we're always delighted to have you back, Neri. Um, so let's start with the issue of USA to the Palestinians. What aid had the Trump administration withheld and what impact did this have on both the Palestinian public and the Palestinian Authority? Right. So we have to remember uh, now that the Biden administration uh, reinstituted or is about to reinstitute uh, aid to the Palestinians, uh, that the Trump administration back in September 2018 uh, cut off all of it, all of it in quick succession, one after the other. Uh, so it's everything from uh, U.S. funding to the East Jerusalem Hospital Network, which is around six hospitals in East Jerusalem, providing a higher level care uh, for Palestinians. Uh, USAID, the development arm of the U.S. government, and that went to providing uh, infrastructure support, development, uh, roads, sewage, water, and the like. Um, you also had uh, UNRWA, which was the big one, the U.N. Uh, Agency, refugee agency uh, for the Palestinians. Uh, America was at the time uh, one of the biggest donors, uh, providing about a quarter of UNRWA's entire budget. Uh, and all of that was, was cut off. Uh, a few months later, actually, Congress also passed a law that cut off the final amount of USAID to the Palestinians that went to the Palestinian Security Forces uh, and the US mission in Jerusalem that, uh, that trains and, uh, and advises and coordinates with the Palestinian security forces. That wasn't actually uh, by the Trump administration per se that came out of Congress, uh, but that also was cut uh, a few months later. So everything was cut, everything was cut. And uh, look, the, the impact uh, was felt uh, at the time. And I know this, I was reporting on the issue and spoke to 
uh, several Israeli, primarily security officials. And the fear was uh, that the, the funding gaps would lead to uh, economic downturn, uh, instability, uh, primarily if we're talking about UNRWA and the services UNRWA provides both in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, fortunately, that didn't, did not exactly happen. Uh, the Europeans and uh, various Gulf Arab states stepped into the breach and really made up the shortfall uh, primarily in terms of UNRWA. Uh, but it uh, really led, uh, I would argue, to a more uh, political or diplomatic impact, which was further eroding the U.S.-Palestinian relationship. Uh, the Palestinians hadn't really been in communication with the Trump administration for several months up to that point uh, due to the announcement about Jerusalem and the embassy move. Uh, but it further deepened uh, that divide, which I believe now the Biden administration is trying to uh, to repair. Uh, what effect do you expect this aid to have on the Palestinian people as well as the Palestinian Authority and the Hamas regime in Gaza? Right. So I think it's important to remember that the U.S. doesn't uh, give aid to the Palestinian Authority. Uh, that's an important point to make, uh, and one that it seems uh, maybe a few people in Congress uh, don't quite understand. Uh, the U.S. provides aid to the Palestinian territories uh, through the vehicles that, that I mentioned, but it doesn't provide any direct assistance to the PA. Uh, that's primarily done uh, by Europe and various other countries, uh, and there's a reason for it. Uh, there are laws on the books in America uh, that uh, that, that don't allow it uh, for many things, uh, except really for security assistance. Uh, but that aid that the Biden administration announced that it's reinstituting uh, will go to, to the things I mentioned. Uh, so they're uh, refunding UNRWA, uh, they're restarting USAID projects, they're refunding the East Jerusalem Hospital Network, people-to-people, uh, -people, civil society uh, organizations uh, that the U.S. had funded for many years. Uh, that is also uh, set to be reinstalled, uh, as well as the uh, Corona COVID relief. Uh, so all of that, in and of itself, I think, will help uh, the the social and humanitarian um, situation on the ground uh, for the Palestinian people. Uh, it will provide jobs. Uh, USAID itself, at its height, uh, looked into it. Uh, some tens of thousands of Palestinians in the West Bank. Benefited from those jobs. These are subcontracted to local Palestinians. Uh, so tens of thousands of people, whether directly or to their extended families, uh, were uh, in essence employed uh, on behalf of these USAID projects. Um, you know, roads, infrastructure, water, uh, sewage, all of that vitally important just in terms of the fabric of life, um, as well as uh, what was reported uh, reinstituting funding, uh, security assistance funding. Um, which I think we can all agree is uh, is a vital uh, interest, especially in terms of the work that PA security forces do with their Israeli counterparts, the Israeli military, uh, and the coordination that, that the U.S. Uh, really spearheads here on the ground. Uh, so all of that is for the good, and I think uh, we've heard it directly from U.S. officials right now. Um, you know, they're looking to uh, to repair that relationship between the U.S. and the Palestinians. Uh, they're looking to, uh, in essence. Uh, uh, by reinstituting aid, uh, it's a signal of intent uh, that they mean to to repair the damage, uh, to help stability and security on the ground. Uh, by the way, not just for Palestinians but Israelis as well. Uh, with an eye in future to uh, to at least keeping the door open to a two-state solution. So we've been talking about UNRWA funding, and uh, as you know. Uh, 
Prime Minister Netanyahu has criticized UNRWA in the past, and Israel's UN Ambassador Gilad Erdan condemned the restart in funding. So what is the Israeli government's preferred solution for UNRWA? And if it is not funded, who does Israel envision operating the schools and health clinics that UNRWA currently operates, and particularly in Gaza, where it the only seeming alternative, particularly with schooling, is Hamas? Right. So uh, I think it depends what part of the Israeli government you ask about UNRWA. Uh, I think the the politicians, especially in the current government, uh, have their own public positions. Uh, Gilad Erdan, uh, now the, the ambassador both in Washington and the UN, came out with a very, very harsh statement uh, to the effect that UNRWA should should essentially be uh, uh, be eliminated uh, due to what they perceive as uh, incitement in the schools and uh, and really the the perpetuation of this refugee status for Palestinians. Uh, you know, look without getting too deep into that issue, uh, if you talk to the security professionals on the Israeli side, uh, they'll tell you flat out that the, the existence of UNRWA and the continued uh, provision of, of those services that UNRWA provides, uh, such as schools, um, health clinics, and the like, uh, is vitally important for both the fabric of life in, in the West Bank and Gaza uh, and overall stability. Um, and I think that in a perfect world, UNRWA would be phased out and the Palestinian Authority government would take over uh, these, these refugee camps, which are really uh, kind of urban, uh, urban neighborhoods and, and concrete slums on the outskirts of various Palestinian cities. Uh, in a perfect world, that, that would happen, but uh, we're unfortunately not living uh, in a perfect and ideal world and political circumstance. And so I don't see any real alternative on the ground for uh, somebody stepping in, whether Palestinian Authority or the Israeli government or military, uh, to take care of all these people. Um, and the numbers really uh, tell the whole story. Uh, in the West Bank, you have about 800,000 registered refugees, um, 19 camps spread all across the West Bank, um, you know, 50,000 kids in schools, uh, and so on and so forth. In Gaza, it's even more acute. Uh, you have about a million uh, Palestinians in Gaza who are dependent on some kind of food aid via UNRWA or other UN agencies. Uh, the population in Gaza is uh, roughly two, two and a half million people. Uh, you have about a quarter of a million students in UNRWA schools in, Gaza, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, you have 21 healthcare centers. Um, and by the way, 13,000 staff in Gaza alone that work for UNRWA uh, in a territory that has roughly you know, 40 or 50, now maybe more percentage unemployment. So they're also an employer of uh, oftentimes directly those refugees living in Gaza. And this is all, you know, these are, these are health factors, um, economic factors, and also ultimately political and security factors uh, that, that UNRWA uh, provides um, de facto, if not, uh, if not stated as such. And so, uh, you know, just by way of anecdote, a number of years ago, I, uh, um, I was reporting in the West Bank, and there was a, a prolonged uh, unrest strike. There was a labor dispute between the management and the staff uh, in, of UNRWA. And, uh, and you go and you visited the refugee camps, and you saw the trash piling up on the streets because UNRWA and the local you know, governmental authorities responsible for that. The kids are on the streets because the schools are closed. The health clinics are closed. Uh, and the people most concerned uh, at the time by the UNRWA strike were, uh, uh, were Israeli uh, security officials, military officials and officers responsible for the West Bank. And the quote that I remember from, from that time 
uh, was that we don't want these kids out on the streets throwing rocks. And so the people arguably most concerned, other than the Palestinians themselves, about the fact that UNRWA wasn't operating uh, as it was, uh, was the Israeli military. And so I think that that speaks uh, that speaks volumes. Um, and again, ultimately, you know, if we find a, a solution in the future, UNRWA will be phased out. Uh, but I don't see that happening uh, anytime in the near future. So let's turn to Palestinian elections. Uh, after a decade and a half of essentially autocratic rule, why did President Mahmoud Abbas push for elections now? Um, that is a great question. Uh, so we have to remember that uh, uh, President Abbas issued a, a decree in January calling for uh, elections, but there are really three separate elections. Um, so next month, on May 22nd, we're going to have elections for uh, the Palestinian Legislative Council, uh, which is the essentially the parliament of the Palestinian Authority, which governs uh, the West Bank and, and ostensibly Gaza. Uh, a month later, we're set to have uh, elections for the presidency of the Palestinian Authority, uh, which is currently occupied by Mahmoud Abbas. And then a month after that, uh, we're supposed to have elections for the uh, Palestinian National Council, which is essentially the, the parliament of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, which is the umbrella organization for the entire Palestinian national movement. Uh, so the PNC, essentially a, uh, the parliament in exile, as it were. So it's three separate elections, which is important to, to emphasize. Uh, but the uh, the coming one next month is is the most important, I would argue, because uh, I think it will dictate what we'll see after that. Uh, so the PLC elections, these le legislative elections, are set to be held. Uh, you know, in terms of the question why, uh, you know, the the stated reason, the ostensible reason, um, is threefold. Number one, it's to restore the the democratic legitimacy of uh, the PA uh, governing body essentially the PA uh, government. Uh, we have to remember the Palestinians haven't had elections in 15 years. So the last time they held parliamentary elections was in 2006. Uh, a year before that, in 2005, they had presidential elections. And really the only time before that uh, was in 1996, where they had both presidential and legislative elections. So it's been 15 years uh, since uh, elections were held in the Palestinian territories. Uh, so they uh, ostensibly want to renew their democratic legitimacy. Um, number two reason is uh, is to essentially reconcile and reunite the Palestinian uh, body politic, uh, both politically and geographically. So we have to remember that uh, in 2007, uh, Hamas uh, violently took over the Gaza Strip uh, from the Palestinian Authority. So you have Hamas governing in Gaza now for the past 14 years. And you have the PA itself in the West Bank, uh, and it's led by the Fatah party. Um, Fatah essentially is a secular nationalist uh, movement in Palestinian politics. And this divide is, has been has held for 14 years and various efforts in, in recent years, uh, I know uh, there have been several because I've covered them, uh, have tried to reconcile uh, between Hamas and Fatah and really between Gaza and the West Bank. And uh, those efforts did not bear any fruit. Uh, so this time they, the idea would be that through elections, uh, they could uh, reconcile and reunify. Um, and then stemming from that, and the third reason ostensibly is to, uh, to essentially reunite the Palestinians uh, under one, let's say, the legitimate 
governing authority and through that uh, provide a, a united front uh, a united vision vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel and the international community uh, in terms of any future peace negotiations. Uh, so you have uh, both Israeli officials and other officials uh, saying with some reason, uh, how do you want us to negotiate with just half of the Palestinians? Even if, even if we cut a deal, it will only be vis-a-vis uh, -vis the West Bank. What about Gaza? Uh, you know, are we talking about a three-state solution? So, uh, so those, those are the three ostensible reasons uh, why elections now. Um, I would argue, and I, I laid this out in my, uh, in my recent report for, for IPS on this topic, which came out a few weeks ago, uh, the push for elections really started last summer. Uh, we have to remember that uh, the summer was marked by uh, Israel's annexation push, uh, annexing uh, large parts of the West Bank uh, with a uh, green light effectively by the Trump administration. Uh, this very much angered uh, President Abbas, uh, as it should have. And so in response, he did two things. He uh, suspended and severed ties with Israel. Uh, economic, security, and other ties. Uh, and then the second one, he pivoted and essentially launched a reconciliation bid with Hamas. Uh, and so he wanted essentially to, to send a message uh, that I have uh, other options that we're going to uh, put up again, a united front, and that uh, you know, various Fatah officials were talking about um, you know, popular resistance uh, in combination with Hamas and other various threats. So this is where this is the genesis, I would argue, of of this uh, of this push. Um, but we should remember, uh, annexation didn't happen uh, in August. It was taken off the table as part of the peace agreement Israel signed with the UAE. Uh, but that didn't quite stop uh, uh, President Abbas. Uh, later in the fall, he uh, he continued on with this reconciliation bid. There were various meetings, primarily in Istanbul, between senior Fatah officials and senior Hamas officials, uh, and this was. I, I would argue a hedge against any uh, Trump victory in the in last November's election, uh, keeping keeping kind of that option on the table in case Trump had won, uh, and also a sort of pushback against uh, the Palestinians' Arab partners uh, to essentially signal their uh, their anger and, or displeasure with the normalization agreements that were coming down the pike uh, with Israel. So the UAE, uh, Morocco, Sudan, Bahrain uh, came subsequently. Uh, so this was in the fall, and so this is when they, the the idea really was okay. We're we're going to to go for elections, but honestly, I don't you know I don't know one Palestinian uh, political observer who who truly thought it would happen. Uh, I think everyone was just waiting to see what happened in the American election, and then everyone assumed that Abbas would uh, kind of. You know, climb down from from this tree uh, now that you know Biden and the Democrats had uh, had taken control in Washington, um, and this led us to January and the decree that I mentioned, which took I would say everyone by surprise that he not only said elections were going to happen, but he issued uh, specific dates for that to happen. Uh, and uh, you know, look, there theories abound about why he continued on with. Um, with the election election process, uh, I haven't heard a very good one. It's really, to my mind, a kind of a mystery why uh, why he continued on, other than the three reasons that I mentioned at the top. You know, the ostensible reasons. Uh, you know, the Europeans themselves have been pushing for elections for quite some time. Uh, I know this firsthand, so 
uh, both European officials here uh, in Israel-Palestine and as well as in various European capitals wanted uh, the Palestinians to repair this democratic deficit and renew their legitimacy. Uh, and through that, improve governance, improve transparency, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and also, arguably, it might have been a misreading by the Palestinians of Biden administration intentions. Um, there was no clear call by Biden, Biden officials for the Palestinians to hold elections. Uh, I think that was something that the Palestinians uh, may have surmised. Um, but nevertheless, here, here we are. Uh, and so they're continuing along with the process. Uh, various meetings have taken place primarily in Cairo between Fatah and Hamas officials uh, in terms of the process for the elections. Uh, electoral lists have been have been registered. Uh, voters have been registered. Uh, so, you know, we're now just over a month away uh, and it's looking like it may actually happen. I guess we'll find out. Um, yes. But I want to drill down a little bit on the PLC election. That's the Palestinian Legislative Council, which is the first one. Um, just a few weeks ago, as you know, Neri, two rivals of President Abbas, Marwan Barghouti, who's serving, I believe, five life terms in jail for terror attacks in Israeli jail, and Yasser Arafat's nephew, Nasser al-Qudwa, Barghouti and al-Qudwa announced they would be organizing their own joint parliamentary slate. This has ramped up speculation that the elections could be canceled. So what do you make of this? And is there any chance that the Israeli government might press for cancellation? Or I guess another way of putting it is postponement. Right. So there are a few, few issues in that one question, and I'll tackle them uh, separately. Uh, number one, the, the concern um, when elections were called, and, and even more so now, uh, for a reason I'll get into in a, in a second, um, is precisely that, that the Fatah movement writ large uh, would fracture, would fracture and would run separate parties, separate lists. And through that, Hamas would uh, once again win the election, essentially gain a majority. Uh, we have to remember that in 2006, the last time elections were held uh, for the PLC, for the legislature um, in the Palestinian territories, Hamas won uh, a shocking victory, a majority. Uh, and this was uh, due primarily to the fact that under the old system, um, Fatah ran multiple candidates in each district, and they basically cannibalized the vote. And Hamas running uh, a more unified uh, campaign uh, did much better than expected. And they took over the, the parliament. They had a majority. They, they formed subsequently uh, the, the PA government led by senior Hamas officials. Uh, and through that, uh, first the U.S and then Europe cut off, and, and Israel, by the way, uh, cut off uh, diplomatic contact with the PA government, uh, cut off aid, more importantly. And so that led to about a year, year and a half of severe, uh, both financial uh, difficulties for the PA, um, as well as security and stability. Uh, there was this jockeying on the ground between Fatah gunmen and Hamas gunmen, uh, stemming from the political impasse. Uh, Abbas, we should remember, was still president, so it was really a divided uh, divided government at the top of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, and it culminated ultimately in the summer of 2007 uh, by the Hamas takeover of Gaza. Uh, so basically the elections did uh, did the opposite of what they were supposed to do back in 2006. And the fear now is that we're watching a, a slow motion replay yeah. of that. Uh, now, this goes back to the question, you know, the, the fractured Fatah movement. So it's not just Abbas's, I would call the mainstream Fatah party running its list. 
Uh, it's not just uh, Nasser al-Qudwe, Yasser Arafat's nephew and a former foreign minister of the PA and uh, Marwan Barghouti, um, who is a senior uh, Fatah uh, grassroots militia leader in, uh, in jail uh, for over a decade in Israel uh, for various terrorist offenses during the Second Intifada. So he's actually in jail, uh, but he threw his weight behind Nasser al-Qudwe's list and they united uh, to, to put that list forward. Um, you have a third Fatah list. You have the list uh, put forward by Mohammed Dahlan, uh, the former uh, uh, security chief in the Gaza Strip, uh, now living in exile in, uh, in the UAE. Uh, and so they put forward their own list. Uh, so basically you have the mainstream Fatah list and two Fatah dissident lists uh, running in the election uh, in combination with various uh, independent parties Leftist parties, uh, former Prime Minister Salam Fayyad, who someone will remember is running uh, his own list. Um, and you have Hamas. So the fear uh, by some is that uh, Hamas will once again uh, run a unified slate. It will draw to its banner all the essentially Islamist voters in Palestinian society, while the more secular, nationalist, liberal, uh, segments of Palestinian society uh, will kind of divide themselves uh, amongst all these various lists, including the three Fatah lists that I mentioned. Uh, and if people um, uh, are having uh, if this rings if this rings familiar to some to some viewers and listeners, uh, just look at the Israeli political system and how it works, and in terms of the coalition politics and and the various parties. Um, and this is very much the Palestinian system now. So you have lists running nationally and you vote for one list and the candidates, you know, depending on how well the parties do, they get into the parliament or not. So that's really the system, uh, the new system in place. So that's a fear. That's the fear in terms of uh, the outcome. You know, I was speaking to to a uh, to a member of Dahlan's list earlier today. Uh, he was arguing the opposite, that precisely because you offer the Palestinian public more options on the Fatah and kind of non-Islamist side, uh, they can get a majority in the parliament. They'll do much better than they would have otherwise running a unified slate, uh, perhaps. But the real question is, there's a reason why Fatah splintered. Uh, Nasser al-Qudwe himself was kicked out of the Fatah party a few weeks ago. Uh, Marwan Barghouti, um, ostensibly there was a deal in place between him and Abbas's people uh, for him to support uh, the mainstream Fatah list. That did not happen at the last minute. And then we all know, uh, or perhaps are familiar with the story of Muhammad Dahlan, uh, who had to go into exile uh, because he fell out with Mahmoud Abbas, and he hasn't returned to uh, to Palestine in in over a decade. So, uh, so perhaps they'll they'll all do well in the election, but then they'll have to work together uh, afterwards. Uh, so that's really the open question. But this is why you have elections, and uh, we should also remember that opinion polling right now. Um, might say one thing, uh, but opinion polls back in 2006 had Fatah winning the election. And so everyone, everyone was surprised back in 2006. Um, in, terms of, in terms of the Israel's position, Israel, uh, official Israel hasn't uh, made a, a concrete decision in terms of you know, the government itself and the cabinet deciding, okay, this is our policy on the Palestinians holding elections. Um, I will say from my conversations with various uh, Israeli officials, uh, they're both mystified and furious. Mystified and furious. They're mystified at, as to why Abbas, uh, if you're waiting, if you had waited 15 years to hold an election, 
uh, why the rush? Why the why the urgency? Um, Israel is going, as we all know, through its own uh, election season and political turmoil. Uh, the Biden administration has only now taken office uh, a few months ago and is still getting its sea legs under it. Uh, and really, uh, Palestine itself is still engulfed in the pandemic, in the COVID pandemic, with all the uh, real economic uh, fallout from that. Um, so the Israelis aren't are fairly mystified at uh, at the timing of the election, uh, and they're also um, furious at the fact that uh, Abbas and, and the mainstream Fatah party itself didn't actually unify ahead of time and get get its own house in order before you go to this election bid and this, you know, essentially reconciliation bid with Hamas. Uh, and so that's the, the Israeli position. Um, you know, at this point, it's unclear if, if Israel will uh, allow elections to be held in East Jerusalem, as they have in the past, uh, in terms of maybe tactical uh, movement by Israel on the ground. We have seen uh, arrests of Hamas activists and candidates in the West Bank by, uh, by the Israeli military. Um, as well as denying uh, Fatah itself, uh, I think last week, uh, to hold a, an election event in, in a hotel in East Jerusalem. Um, so, you know, my guess is as good as anybody's in terms of what, what Israel will ultimately do. I think a lot will depend on where the Biden administration ends up. Uh, I'll just say by way of conclusion that in 2006, um, it required a late stage intervention by Condoleezza Rice. Uh, so the George W. Bush administration uh, pressing Israel to allow voting in East Jerusalem, um, East Jerusalem post offices, uh, uh, with a wink and a nod, these are absentee ballots, but they're voting in East Jerusalem post offices. Uh, and because of U.S. pressure, Israel ultimately relented and allowed uh, elections to be held in East Jerusalem. Um, at this point, uh, from the information I have, uh, the Biden administration has not made that request of Israel. If President Abbas were to cancel elections at this stage with processes like voter registration drives already complete, how would it impact his standing and legitimacy with the Palestinian public? Uh, not well, as you as you can imagine. Uh, look, elections and and you know the Palestinians themselves having a say in in who governs them, uh, as you can imagine, especially after fifteen years, is quite popular. Um, so just recent opinion polling put out by uh, Khalil Shikaki, um, very well-respected pollster uh, in, in Ramallah and his organization, um, you know, 76% of Palestinians want elections to be held. Um, by the way, 51% expect them to be held. So they might be, uh, you know, there's a delta there of people who, who are a bit more cynical, but a vast majority want them and expect them to be held. And so if that doesn't happen, uh, that will have knock-on effects on um, on their level of uh, of uh, let's say happiness with uh, their current leadership. Um, and in terms of Abbas himself, he you know he will pay a price. He will pay a price. You know how how that manifests itself on the ground is open to speculation because uh, um, you know they, the the PA uh, apparatus does have a good grip on on security and stability on the ground, uh, again, for good or bad, depending on if they're going after terrorists or after you know dissidents posting something on social media. Uh, but Abbas's standing amongst his public, again, based on opinion polling, isn't great, um, isn't great. Uh, a large majority uh, outright want him to step down. 
after now 16 years in power. Um, he was elected in 2005 to a four-year term. Uh, he's now been in power for 16 years. Uh, and this is a point I like to I like to raise, but it's not a minor point, I think. Um, you know, his predecessor, the Yasser Arafat, actually the, the father of the Palestinian national movement, was only president of, of the Palestinian Authority from 1994, when it was established, until Arafat's death in 2004. So that was a decade. And Abu Mazen, now his successor, has been in power for, for 16 years. Um, so that's not a, not a minor point. Um, so I think, you know, I think anybody who, who moves to cancel elections will, will pay a price. Um, again, I don't know what that price would, would actually look like, uh, whether on the basis of, you know, Israel not allowing voting in Jerusalem, uh, whether due to the corona pandemic, which arguably is a legitimate reason just based on infection rates uh, in the West Bank and Gaza right now, um, as well as a third issue that people don't raise, uh, the fact that election observers uh, have not been able to to arrive or, or plan to arrive here uh, from Europe and other places. Um, so in the past, Palestinian elections have actually been uh, very free and very fair. Uh, and that's a testament to, to Palestinian politics and Palestinian society, uh, you know, even in 1996 and 2005 and 2006. They had uh, hundreds of international observers monitoring the vote, uh, and they were free and fair. Um, and so I don't know what will happen if, uh, if observers are not allowed in. Uh, again, it requires coordination with Israel. Um, but holding a vote in Gaza and the West Bank, and you just have the, the uh, Hamas-infused police in Gaza and the Fatah-infused police in the West Bank monitoring the vote, um, it's open to shenanigans. If elections do proceed and the Barghouti al-Qudwa list is successful or Hamas achieves some kinds of gains, how might this affect the U.S.-Palestinian relationship? And what about Israeli-Palestinian relations? Right. Uh, if we have a rerun of 2006, um, it, it may very well be a rerun of 2006, where Israel uh, suspends ties and suspends uh, tax transfers to the PA creating a, a financial crisis, uh, as well as uh, there was an interview with a, a senior Biden official uh, that was published in a Palestinian newspaper a few days ago uh, with a very clear warning uh, that if, uh, if Hamas or any other party you know, won the election and, and spearheaded the next government, uh, they had to be committed to, uh, to recognizing Israel, to renouncing violence and adhering uh, to past Israeli-Palestinian agreements. That's a direct uh, I would say warning to uh, to any kind of um, you know the fallout of any of any potential Hamas victory again. Uh, and Israel has has said that as well uh, via one particular IDF general um, who came out publicly and said that. I think the the Shin Bet chief also uh, delivered a warning a few weeks ago uh, to Mahmoud Abbas in, in Ramallah. Um, so yeah, it, it's a major it's a major concern if Hamas were to win again. I should say that this time around, I think Hamas is playing a more a more nuanced game. So we talked about motivations in terms of why Abbas went for elections, uh, which is open to, to speculation. For Hamas, it's, it, the motivation is much more straightforward. Uh, they want someone else, primarily the PA government, to come and take over uh, governmental and governance responsibilities in Gaza. Uh, they've been trying to offload. Uh, governing Gaza now uh, for seven years, 
just due to their own uh, economic difficulties stemming from the Israeli and Egyptian blockade. Uh, and Hamas is really gunning for uh, to regain a foothold in the West Bank and really uh, to, to gain a foothold for the first time in the PLO, in this umbrella organization for the entire Palestinian national movement. Uh, and they've given, let's say, unofficial, uh, unwritten assurances that they're not looking to, again, like they did in 2006, uh, lead, you know, lead a PA government. Um, you know, again, what are those assurances worth? I, I don't know, but uh, but this time at least they're uh, they're singing a very different tune given given what happened in 2006. So I've got a couple more questions, and then I'm going to turn to the audience for a bunch of really great questions, uh, mostly focused, of course, on the elections. Um, but again, if you would like to ask a question, please type it in the Q and A box. Uh, while we're on the subject of Palestinian leadership, General Kamil Abu Rukon, the recently retired head of COGAT, which is the Israeli government agency responsible for the territories, expressed in an interview over the weekend his regret over how Israel had handled its relationship with Mahmoud Abbas, describing him as a partner and someone who was committed to opposing violence. How reflective of the Israeli security establishment's position do you think this outlook is? And how can Israel approach its ties with the PA in a more constructive manner, according to General Abu Rukon? Well, uh, so this was a remarkable interview. Um, and it was aired, I believe, a night or two ago on Channel 11 uh, by the very terrific uh, Palestinian affairs correspondent for Channel 11, uh, Dal Berger. And he interviewed uh, General Abu Rukon, uh, uh, essentially an, an exit interview. So Abu Khan finished up his position as a coordinator of government activities in the territories. Essentially, the an idea it's a it's an Israeli military body responsible for uh, ties with the Palestinians. Uh, and he finished up, I believe, about a week or so ago. Um, and he had given this interview actually before he finished. It was only aired uh, a night or two ago. Uh, it, it's not only reflective of what Israeli security professionals think it, it is what Israeli security professionals think. Um, and I know this firsthand, uh, I co-authored a, a major study on the PA security forces for uh, the Washington Institute a few years ago. And through reporting for, for that study, I interviewed probably dozens of Israeli uh, officials and, and officers from the security establishment, uh, from the very top to almost the very bottom. Uh, and they all said the same thing. They all said the same thing, essentially what uh, General Abu Rukhon, uh mentioned himself. Uh, now, uh, the issue is that uh, they oftentimes can't say it publicly uh, when they're in position because the, the Palestinian file is, is highly politicized and highly sensitive in the Israeli system. So any, any official uh, worth the salt uh, doesn't want to ruffle the feathers of those above him, especially the politicians. Uh, so they wait until they, they finish and they're retired to, to air what arguably all of them know to be true, which is that under Abbas's leadership, uh, really starting, I would say, uh, after the Hamas takeover of Gaza, 2008-9. So we're talking now over a decade. Um, the security relationship between Israel and the Palestinians is night and day different than what it was before, uh, primarily under Yasser Arafat. And that coordination is is strong. It's upheld at every level. Um, the PA security forces fight terror. They maintain stability. Uh, this is not your 
This is not Yasser Arafat's Palestinian Authority. Um, and so this is what Abu Rukun is talking about when he says that Abbas is a partner and that he wishes uh, Israel had, had uh, managed that relationship better. Um, if you go into the actual interview, he alludes to what he would like to see, and this goes back to uh, the second half of your question. He alludes to what he would like to see, which is basically, and I've heard this from other uh, Israeli officers and officials as well, um, the Palestinians don't just want to be the mayors of these towns in the West Bank and you know Gaza. That they that they want a, a national political entity, uh, essentially self determination, and that you have to provide this horizon, a credible horizon for them, uh, in order for the relationship to uh, to endure and to essentially build on. Uh, and so, what you have now is uh, essentially a holding pattern. Um, at best, uh, and under Trump, we saw obvious regressions in terms of what Israel was was planning on doing in terms of annexing uh, in the West Bank. Uh, but you have to provide a, a, a real incredible political horizon uh, for the Palestinians. Otherwise, what we've seen now over the past decade plus uh, is just not sustainable. So I'm going to turn to audience questions. But before I do, Neri, I'm going to pivot away from what we've been talking about to just ask you about another really big story that's unfolding right now in the region, which has to do with the explosion at the Natanz nuclear facility in Iran. While Israel is not taking credit, it's it's widely speculated that uh, Israel had something to do with this. And I guess we'll find out eventually, maybe we'll find out, Um, you know, Iran and, and basically that explosion apparently has set back the development of centrifuges at the Natanz facility by at least several months. And I should also mention, there's also this naval uh, involvement going on between Iran and Israel. Um, I saw that another Israeli ship was bombed uh, recently. Uh, So today. today. So could you talk just for a minute about how this is playing out? Of course, we have to remember that this is all happening in the context of United States sort of starting baby steps to get back into some kind of negotiating position with the Iranians and certainly through, through the uh, P5 uh, meetings that are taking place. And now you have this. So Neri, if you want to just touch on that and then I will get to some really wonderful questions from our audience. Right. So uh, look, um, the Iran Israel uh the, the covert war that has been going on now for, for a number of years is increasingly now, almost on a daily basis, uh, breaking out into the open. Uh, so we see now the naval arena is, is a major source um, source of uh, conflict on both sides. Uh, you have obviously the Iranian nuclear program, so whether it's the, uh, the sabotage at Natanz uh, over the weekend or uh, farther back, remember the assassination in Iran of a lead nuclear scientist, uh, last last November, uh, airstrikes in Syria against Iranian or Iranian affiliated militias, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's all now coming out into the open. I would disagree. Uh, what you said at the top, uh, we we very clearly know it was Israel because Israel itself leaked uh, leaked the fact that it was Mossad. Uh, I think that that very night or the next morning. Uh, so we had a leak that the entire Israeli Israeli press corps was running with. Uh, sourced to intelligence officials with the exact same verbatim quote. 
that it was a Mossad operation and that it uh, caused significant damage to Iran's nuclear project and the uh, uranium uh, enrichment facilities at Natan. Uh, and then we had, uh, I think the day after, a other intelligence official uh, telling the New York Times uh, as much in in a bit more detail. So so the issue now is uh, that uh, arguably it's not so much the, the operations themselves, but it's the increased chatter around it uh, and these leaks that have either a diplomatic purpose or a political purpose or both. Uh, and the timing, I, you know, I don't know this for sure, but the timing, um, I believe it was last week when uh, it was reported that Israel or the Israeli the Israeli Navy hit a an Iranian um, military vessel in the Red Sea. That was on the same day that uh, the talks in Vienna started. Uh, and, uh, and now we have these events now uh, this past weekend. So I think, you know, the best way to look at it is, you know, there's an operational dimension to it. There are very real operational needs uh, in terms of, let's say, Iranian smuggling oil to Syria in order to uh, finance Hezbollah, uh, by the way, also arms. Uh, that's an operational need uh, to slow down the Iranian nuclear project is an operational need. Uh, but there's obviously a larger diplomatic context, both in terms of the, the nuclear talks that Biden is trying to restart, as well as the U.S.-Israel relationship itself. Um, you know, Israel is at war with Iran, but arguably it's also at war with U.S. diplomacy, uh, and so you may you may be able to manage one side of that equation, uh, but the other side of that equation has a much longer tail and much deeper potential fallout. Um, and then the third aspect, uh, and this is not a unique thought to me, um, but it's been obviously mentioned here in Israel for the past few days. Uh, Netanyahu is in um, is in uh, uh, essentially coalition talks. He has a mandate to form a government stemming from last month's election. Uh, and so these, these leaks, uh, almost without doubt, are coming from, uh, let's say, officials close to him. And so people are speculating whether there's also a domestic political angle to essentially heightening the flames and creating a, at least a sense of crisis uh, in order to convince certain parties to join him in a future coalition. And I would just note that Amos Yadlin of the INSS was uh, rather critical of the decision making, because as I understand, this is not going through the security cabinet. Uh, basically, it's it's uh, the prime minister. Sounds like he's pretty much operating on his own on this, and that probably doesn't bode well for the best decision making when it comes to secure <laughs> when it has security ramifications. All right, let's get to the audience questions, and uh, I hope I pronounced your names correctly, Michael Wojnarowicz. How unstable. Um, are the Palestinian territories at the moment? Are are any unforeseen factors, irregularities during elections, canceling presidential or PLC elections, more settler violence? Uh, could these factors uh, ignite protest or wider unrest from Palestinians against their political leadership, both Fatah and Hamas? Uh, look, it's a great question. Um, in terms of stability, I, you know, arguably it's never been quieter um, in terms of overall stability, either from Gaza or the West Bank. Um, there are a number of factors uh, explaining that. I'm not going to get into to the reasons why, but uh, but in terms of stability, again, it's, um, it's, it's quite quiet. Uh, in terms of the, the second part of your question, it's, it's well taken. It's well taken. Uh, Palestine itself never went through an Arab Spring. Um, never went through an Arab Spring. 
there were fears of that at certain points, I believe in 2012, uh, but it never materialized. Uh, you know, we see, we see how these things uh, cannot be predicted uh, and until they actually materialize. But, uh, but again, nobody can quite say, you know, what the fallout might be, uh, you know, for a postponement of elections. Um, it, might, it might be nothing. Uh, Melvin Klein asks, what quid, quid pro quo has the Biden administration exacted for the multiple refunding of U.S.-Palestinian projects? Quid pro quo, look, I think um, there hasn't been, to my knowledge, an explicit uh, quid pro quo. I think the thinking by the Biden administration is that uh, Trump cutting off aid back in 2018 uh, was meant to pressure the Palestinians to essentially capitulate, whether to kind of re-engage with the Trump administration, uh, whether to institute some domestic reforms, whether to ultimately capitulate uh, once the Trump administration put out its, uh, its so-called peace plan. Uh, so it was really uh, a form of maximum pressure, if we're going to borrow an analogy from the Iranian context, uh, on the Palestinians, which, which didn't work, didn't work. Uh, the Palestinians did not capitulate. Uh, the they remained uh, steadfast in their position that they're not going to engage with with Trump, um, and they did so until until the end of, of that administration. Uh, so, in terms of what Biden is looking to do right now, he's looking to, I believe, reengage uh, again, signal an, an intent to to reengage with with the Palestinian leadership and with the Palestinian people. More importantly, um, they want to bolster uh, prosperity. Uh, and security for Palestinians as well as Israelis. Uh, and they want to create, I think, a better environment and to keep this window open uh, with a future eye to possible two-state solution. So I think that's the, the motivation. And, and I think uh, just based on the Trump experience, uh, I think it's the right policy uh, by the Biden people. Judy Kropf has a Simple, but I would say elegant question. Why don't they combine these three elections into one? Well, uh, it's a great question. Uh, so Hamas initially uh, was pushing for exactly that, to have all these elections on one or two days um, and and just to essentially be done with it. Uh, Abbas and Fatah uh, were very much against it, and essentially Hamas uh, capitulated. Uh, they conceded that point, and so... This was a Fatah idea uh, to have it sequentially, uh, one after the other. And I think the, the reason for that is very clear. I think uh, Abbas and Fatah want to see how the parliamentary elections go uh, and then take it from there. Uh, so the, what I've heard, you know, it's not it's unofficial, but uh, this is, this is the, kind of the whispers in terms of, um, you know, Palestinian political observers and analysts is that... Uh, you know, if, if Fatah, the mainstream Fatah party, does not do well in next month's parliamentary elections, then very small chance that he'll go ahead with the uh, presidential elections. That was that was uh, the actual kind of political reason why. And how would that work, by the way, if if Hamas emerges victorious from next month's elections, but Abbas, of course, is the head of Fatah as well as president? I mean, how do they work together? So uh, this goes to to what may happen afterwards. So the the role of the Palestinian Parliament, the PLC, uh, so it's a kind of a two pronged system. So you have the president, who's the executive, really, of the of the PA, 
um, but you have a parliament who has oversight responsibilities uh, and also uh, they, they essentially have to give their confidence or swear in uh, a PA government, uh, a prime minister and a foreign minister and all the like that, that essentially runs the day-to-day apparatus of the Palestinian Authority. So according to Palestinian basic law, which is the Palestinian version of a constitution, uh, Abbas can nominate anybody he wants to be prime minister. But that prime minister and the government he chooses has to gain the confidence of, of parliament. Um, so that, come, that, that speaks to the importance of, of who holds the majority uh, in the parliament. Oh, a clarification question from Marion Bergman. If you could clarify how many people live in the West Bank and how many live in Gaza at present? Great question. Uh, so in Gaza, I believe at the moment, it's around two and a half million people. So it's over 2 million people. Uh, in the West Bank, uh, I believe it's closer to three, three, a bit more than three, three million Palestinians. Okay, so growing dramatically in both both areas. Um, Edward Howe wonders, will Abbas cancel elections because Israel will not allow East Jerusalem citizens to vote? First of all, has that determination been made by Israel? No, the, the, Israel hasn't made that determination. Uh, like I said, it, I think it really will depend on where Biden comes down on the issue, if, if at all. Um, and in terms of having you know, uh, uh, an excuse to postpone the elections, uh, Jerusalem is always out there, although uh, the Palestinians at least publicly say that uh, they're going to move forward. They, you know, they're going to hold elections with Jerusalem is the official line, uh, but that contingency plans are in place if Israel does not allow that. Uh, to my mind, Corona, the coronavirus is, is the more likely explanation. The coronavirus, by the way, coupled with election observers, international observers. So we did have a question about COVID um, from Rachel Goldberg. What impact might the COVID response play in Palestinian elections, especially in light of the cooperation issues between Israel and the PA and disparities between how the PA and Hamas handled supply and vaccine distribution in their communities? Uh so like everywhere else in the world, uh, the public, uh, you know, gauges the, their response to the leadership based on how effective the response has been to, to the coronavirus. Uh, initially, the, the Palestinian Authority did quite a good job of, of working to contain the virus, uh, you know, quarantine, medical help, uh, and the like. Uh, now things have gotten uh, slightly out of control. And so the, the approval rating, let's say, of the Palestinian response in the West Bank is, is much lower, it's much lower. And also that, that speaks to uh, the timing uh, for these elections. You know, if you're an incumbent party, uh, maybe not the best time to, to hold an election in the teeth of a pandemic. Uh, but that's just the reality of the situation uh, at the moment. Uh, in Gaza also, Hamas did initially a very good job of, of containing uh, the virus. Uh, now things have also kind of spun out of control in Gaza, they've instituted uh, essentially lockdowns in Gaza. Uh, so again, it doesn't probably doesn't speak uh, well to the prospects for the incumbent parties in those particular territories. We have a couple of questions about UNRWA. Alan Alter asks, who was running the UNRWA program, schools, clinics, et cetera, during the cutoff of U.S. aid in the last few years? And then we have a separate question. Is there any way to encourage or require UNRWA schools to modify the way they teach about Israel, which, as you know, has been a huge sticking point and understandably right. so for the Israeli government. Uh, so I believe UNRWA 
has undertaken and will undertaken further uh, reforms, let's say, in the educational curriculum. Uh, I think that needs to be uh, monitored and, and followed up on. Uh, and in terms of who was running UNRWA uh, when Trump cut off the aid, uh, you know, they were still they were still an ongoing concern. Um, so the Europeans, as well as certain Gulf Arab states, uh, stepped in and provided more financial support. Uh, that, I believe, in the past year or so, has fallen off. Uh, the Arab Gulf states have have stopped a lot of their uh, contributions to UNRWA, and the Europeans, from my understanding, are are pretty maxed out in terms of providing uh, donor aid uh, to the Palestinian territories. Uh, but really, UNRWA, UNRWA kept on uh, with, with what it did, uh, with the services it provides, uh, but it was difficult. I think there were moments where uh, staff went without pay. Uh, there were cutbacks in terms of services provided, uh, but they, they kept on. Um, but it really was kind of almost on a month-to-month -month basis, you know, going out and, and trying to raise uh, raise money, and so now the the Biden announcement uh, uh, of recent weeks, I think, uh, was very much uh, was greeted with with a a big sigh of relief. I think uh, by UNRWA itself. I think we have time for a couple more, Neri. Um, Barry Leopold asks: he, There are lots of diasporic Palestinians around the world. Do they get to vote absentee? So not in the legislative or the presidential elections, to the best of my knowledge, uh, although I think diplomats may, Palestinian diplomats may be able to vote. Uh, but the real question about the Palestinian diaspora um, is the third election that I mentioned for the PLO's parliament, uh, the Palestinian National Council. Uh, in the past, there, there have never really been elections for that body. Uh, it's usually done on a quota system. There are about over 700 uh, members in that in that body. Uh, it's usually a quota system. The various Palestinian factions nominate people. Uh, you have trade unions, student groups, uh, diaspora communities. So this is really, uh, like I said, the umbrella group for the entire Palestinian national movement, um, not just uh, in the Palestinian territories here, but uh, but globally. Um, so yeah, and, and again, nobody nobody quite knows how that would work in practice. And the Palestinians themselves have to figure out uh, what the process would be uh, if and when that election actually takes place. So we have time for one more quick question um, about the interest of Gulf states, the UAE, Saudis, et cetera, in these elections. So uh, it's interesting. I um, Outwardly, uh, they were essentially for it. Uh, I think we may all remember there was a, an interview by uh, Prince Bandar uh, of Saudi Arabia uh, late last year. Uh, really, it was, I think, a two or three part uh, long interview um, for an Arabic satellite TV station where he essentially just blasted the Palestinian leadership. And one of the things he criticized them for was uh, the lack of reconciliation and the lack of uh, essentially democratic legitimacy. Uh, and so uh, that may have played a role in, in kind of Palestinian motivations to go to an election. I, I don't know. But uh, in terms of the immediate neighbors, we, we have a sense that Jordan and Egypt, uh, while they outwardly might be, might be for the process, uh, uh, privately they're, they're quite concerned uh, for the reasons that I mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, and so I think, you know, I think it all depends on, on the outcome of those elections, really, uh, if they see it serving their interests or, or not. Uh, we should remember that the UAE is a primary backer of uh, Mohammed Dahlan, 
the former security chief in Gaza, who's running uh, his own uh, dissident Fatah list. So obviously they would like him to do well. Uh, Qatar has been a longtime patron of Hamas. So arguably they want him, uh, they want Hamas to do well. Uh, and Jordan, uh, you know, they want uh, overall stability, uh, especially in the West Bank, but they don't want to see uh, Hamas do well because they have their own account uh, with the Muslim Brothers uh, and Islamists in general. So uh, it's a complicated uh, uh, pan-Arab political scene, uh, but they are involved to one degree or another, and they are monitoring uh, the Palestinian elections. Um, I'll just say, as as all of us should be, uh, and I, I'll close by saying that I think uh, IPF uh, is one of the few organizations that that do focus heavily on internal Palestinian dynamics and, and Palestinian politics. Uh, they commissioned uh, the study I wrote a few weeks ago. Uh, I, I say that not just because I wrote it, but because of the, the, the subject matter, I think is is really important for anybody who wants to actually understand what what's happening here on the ground. Uh, I remember, uh, I'll just close with this, a few years ago, I, I was interviewing a, a businessman in Nablus. Uh, in a city in, in the northern West Bank. And at a certain point, he stops and says, I don't understand why people don't understand that we have our own politics here. Mm. There, there are political dynamics in Palestine uh, that people don't quite appreciate or don't quite understand or want to understand. Um, and, uh, you know, you contrast that with how much coverage an Israeli election gets. Uh, I think uh, more, more balance is probably is probably called for because, it, again, it has wide-ranging impact on what actually happens here on the ground. Definitely. Unfortunately, Neri, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Um, if you would like to learn more about this topic, please uh, read Neri's recent policy report for Israel Policy Forum, which you can find on our website. Um, his report focused on the impact elections will have on the U.S.-Palestinian relationship, so very apropos of what we've been discussing. Once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this possible. And again, if you have not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all once more for joining us today. I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Sign up to receive the weekly Coplo column in your email inbox and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. Please stay tuned for an announcement regarding our next video briefing, which will take place next Tuesday, April 20th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Neri Hamontada. And Chag uh, Sameach. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.